From Daylight, I'm Kazuki Akiba. I'm Brandon Beiser. And this is Sayonara Baseball. This is a podcast where you and I find unseen baseball gems by analyzing them alongside different trends, news, and motivation behind many moves around the league today. Today, we'll talk about Alex Manoa, the bamboozle of Pittsburgh, some more news from Oakland Athletics, what's going on in Arizona, and we'll finish off with two walk-up songs that are absolute bangers. Baez hits it on the ground to third, Gonzalez. This is so good. <laughs> oh my goodness! Wow! You gotta be kidding me! You've gotta be they kidding me! They stole a run! You have gotta be kidding me! Javi Baez! Keep going! Go! Go! Think you're invisible! Welcome to today's show, everyone. Today is Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. I'm Brandon Beiser. I'm here with Kazuki. It is Pride Month, so happy Pride Month. We have already seen in baseball that the San Francisco Giants will have plans for a month-long celebration, which is great as a proud owner of a Pride San Francisco Giants shirt. It's great to see that continue on. We'll start off with the news, and we have several headlines today. Corey Kluber will be out with multiple will be out with an injury for multiple months. Cardinals Jack Flaherty will be out for quite some time. We don't quite know how long uh, the the St. Louis Cardinals are being a little bit apprehensive to say how long, but it's a definite blow to that team. They were doing quite well, and now it's basically on the heels of Adam Wainwright and what else they can handle. Oakland Athletics president Dave Cable, who we've been kind of our quote-unquote villain, not so much a villain, slightly more villain in our previous story from last time, released a statement in response to a post on Twitter about meals being served to minor leaguers in their system. According to the statement, the team has canceled a contract with a vendor to improve their food service to those minor leaguers. Basically, if you pull up the the photo on Twitter, it looks like something out of Fire Festival. Dave Cable came out, said we have canceled our contract. And so far, the issue seems to be resolved. But the ongoing issue about how much you're paying minor leaguers, the conditions, even though they're improving with supposedly with all the uh, realignments and discontinuation of certain teams, what we talked about with Todd late in 2020. We'll see how that truly goes. Quite a, possibly one of my least favorite stories to bring up, but I'm going to talk about it, and I'll let Kazuki want to chime if he wants to. Arizona Diamondbacks TV analyst Bob Brenly. During a broadcast in the Diamondbacks-Mets game, when Marcus Stroman was pitching, just said something quite despicable. He said, quote, I'm sure that's the same do-rag that Tom Seaver used to wear when he pitched for the Mets. Now, Brenly has apologized. Marcus Stroman's response on Twitter was quite poignant. Onward and upward through all adversity and race understones, the climb continues through all. Uh, when manager Luis Rojas of the Mets heard about it, he was immediately disappointed. Kazuki, I get you have to fill three hours on a TV broadcast, but choose your words. It's simply better. I mean, like, Marcus Stroman's a do-rag serves a purpose. Get over it and move on. Yeah, I I think it should be only about to focus on, you know, someone's maybe character uh, and like performance, but not like who they are. They can't change that. Oh, so like focus on, you know, what they're what they've like done. That's like action. You know, it's all about the action and just comment on people's action. And I don't think that makes any sense in a broadcast. No, it was it was a patently very implicitly racist comment possibly even a little bit explicitly racist comment and he apologized i hope he i hope he knows better bob brenly has been there about the game for a while marcus stroman pitches quite well focus like i said focus on that whatever whatever he wears people talk about like what 
players are wearing on the field. They're playing the game. Focus on the game. Move on here. Uh, and then another another story that I don't want to talk about more, but we're going to probably talk about it more throughout the summer because it means a lot in the sense that it's becoming an, a more continued issue in baseball. In all of sports, I'll say this, but in baseball, we've seen it several times now. Marcelo Zuna was arrested for several domestic violence charges in Atlanta. The interesting note about this these charges were that the According to what I read from the police reports, the police witnessed what happened. They witnessed the actual char- the actual acts of violence against, I believe it was his wife, if I remember that correctly. As of June 1st, Ozuna has posted bond and has been released from jail and awaits trial. Now, Kazuki, before we begin the show today, you mentioned that this has been with several pitchers. Can you remind yes. our audience the pitchers who have been involved with those? I mean, we talked about Ozuna last year in the playoffs about that, then the Astros signing him. But remind me again, there were two couple other pitchers that you had brought up that had also been arrested for domestic violence charges recently. Yeah, so uh, the big one, I think no one kind of brings up anymore, probably because of like you know media power, but uh, Aroldis Chapman of the New York Yankees. Uh, before he was traded from the Reds to Yankees, he had a gunfire, I think, in a garage, which was uh, very disturbing to hear. Uh, but he didn't get charged for that. So uh, there's there, but he was suspended for 30 games. You have Jose Reyes uh, at the time of the Blue Jays and then went to the Rockies. He uh, was charged, was suspended for a couple of games at, in the Rockies. And a most recently, a uh, man who came back to the Yankees. Uh, Domingo Herman, who was suspended for 80 games for his domestic violence um, allegation where he slapped his uh, then-girlfriend um, at CC Sabathia's uh, charity party event. The only thing that's different from a Marcel Azuna's is that police didn't witness. It's more like it was in private. So, But it's still a serious issue that's been going around. Um, you know, there's a lot more. It was Julio Arias. That's the other guy, unfortunately, that we have to bring up. Um you know, it's been a very ongoing bad issue for the past, like, you know, five, six years. And I'm pretty sure that's been a trend that's going on for like decades. We're glad that people are understanding what's going on. I don't want to dwell on the topic, but it's the, the fact that the prevalence of the issue is being more and more talked about and more and more observed is troubling. The, the more and more observed is troubling. The more and more talked about is good. So we'll see how this kind of plays out, because like I said, the Ozuna incident the, the, the actual incidents that resulted in the charges were witnessed by police, which is the nuance of this unique of this situation. We'll report on it more as we learn more. Uh, keep uh, tabs on your news reports. This will be across all news reports, not just sports, uh, when we get through those. And with that, we'll get into our regular segments. Uh, in the cycle today, we're going to talk about Alex Manoa, his debut for Toronto. We're going to revisit Javi Baez and what I'm calling the bamboozle of Pittsburgh. Uh, we have more on Oakland from a new source. We'll talk about where the MLB stands at the end of May of 2021, including, in particular, Kazuki brought this up to me, Arizona is just flat out bad. Uh, And we need to talk about what's going on with Arizona in the Diamondbacks. And tip of the cap, like I said in the intro, we're, we're gonna spin a little differently. I think for the first time in a very long time, we're not gonna talk about pitchers, which is great. Uh, and then the same for giving the hooks, we're not gonna talk about pitchers again. Uh, which is great. Uh, our walk-up songs, we got two this week. One is very baseball related and one I'm going to 
I'm going to say this very, very clearly. I have to thank TikTok for this song being coming back into my life, coming to my life. But we're going to talk about it because I think this is the this could be the next baby shark Harada Paro situation. I really think that could be the what's going to happen. And then finally, yesterday was the 2nd of June. That was Lou Gehrig Day. And I have learned a lot more about the whole evolution of this day. So I want to, we'll conclude on that because you and I will talk about that. And with that, we'll go into the cycle. The first thing is we talked about Kelnick and Gilbert for the Mariners and about how important it was to bring them up. I want to say a sort of a surprise was seeing Alex Manoa debut for the Blue Jays versus the Yankees in a doubleheader on May 27th. He pitched six innings, got seven strikeouts, two hits, two walks. Won the game. His first strikeout was Rugnet Odor. He struck out Aaron Judge in the next bat, next at bat, next batter. I remember seeing his family in the stands go absolutely wild over these strikeouts, which was phenomenal. Uh, CBS Sports ranked Manoa as the third best prospect in the Blue Jay system last fall. N- what else do we know about Alex Manoa? Because I hadn't heard a lot about him, but as soon as he came into the big leagues, it was a big deal. And we all know the farm system in Toronto has a lot going on for it. So what else can you tell us about Alex Manoa and what can we maybe expect throughout the rest of the season, depending on how many times he's available? Sure. I mean, Manoa's a very legit talent. I'm going to put, put it out there. He was ranked nine, uh, 97 overall by the MLB. Uh, six foot six Miami na- na- uh, native who started off in AAA Buffalo this season. So here's a stat before he actually came up to the big league, before that big start against the Yankees. He had a 0.5 ERA, was 27 strikeouts and only three walks. So we're talking about 90K to walk ratio, uh, which is insanely pretty high uh, in 18 innings. And we're talking about a 14.9% K rate, which is very, very good on top of his 0.56 whip. So he does not give up many base hits or walk too many people. Uh, his arsenal, we're, we're looking at a 92 to 96 mile per hour fastball that could go up to 97.8. So that's a very good heater. And on top of that, lefties, uh, well, Yankees didn't have many lefties because they're mostly righties, but lefties, uh, they only went four for 26, which is a 154 batting average with nine strikeouts. So as a right-handed pitcher, if you could... Uh, neutralized lefties that's a really big deal and then during his uh, sophomore year at West Virginia he threw 108 and a third inning and finished with a net four record was 144 strikeouts and a 2.08 ERA so that translated to a over 11th overall pick by the Blue Jays in 2019 so he's a very big top prospect that kind of climbed the ladder very quickly so within Literally two years was one year of no actual competitive uh, games, right? Because of COVID and uh, at an alternate site. So literally was just four games of professional career. He just came up and now was a big in the in that rotation. And, and he's here to stay. Yeah, I hope he's here to stay. It's interesting you brought up his draft year. Because I will say that his draft year matters because it is very soon. It's very recent. I'm curious how many times he comes to pitch. Because as we talked about in our last episode, the Blue Jays have the cliff for both their hitters and their batters when it comes to what is going on. It's Robbie Ray, Steve Matz, 
Injin Ryu, and then the cliff. I don't know what's going to happen with him. I saw somewhere that they don't predict a lot of starts, but I'm not sure how accurate that will be with things like that. But the fact that he's the one of the first, if not the first 2019 draft pick to make it to the majors after playing no baseball last year, competitive baseball, play baseball, not competitively last year against opposition is a strong reminder that the schedule could the doubleheader thing, it's always going to throw things, uh, the injury, it's always going to throw different ways of having manager line. So we'll see. Like you said, I'm curious the only moment time he pitches, but we'll leave it there with that. And now, same day, we travel a little bit to the southeast, southwest, I'm sorry, to the corner, to the three rivers, which I will try to remember from living there, the Monongahela, the Allegheny, and the Ohio River. I think I got it. PNC Park. Javi Baez, Chicago Cubs are playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. The great bamboozle of Pittsburgh, everyone. This is what, it's just, we play, Kazuki and I are on the softball team, and we've seen some boneheaded plays on from ourselves on our softball team, like even I'll admit myself sometimes, but professionals. Javi Baez is up with two outs and hits a routine grounder to third base, right? I think it was third base, and he throw, throw across the diamond, and Javi Baez stops dead. I'll read the quote from the Pittsburgh Gazette on how they describe the play. On May 27th, the Pittsburgh Pirates took on Chicago Cubs at PNC Park. At the end of the third inning, Cubs' Javi Baez hit a grounder to the third, but the throw pulled first base and Will Craig off the bag. Rather than simply retreat to the bag and step on it for the third and final out, this is crucial, ladies and gentlemen. He chased the batter down towards home plate in a bizarre rundown. Meanwhile, Wilson Contreras, a catcher, catcher. I mean, he's quite fast for a catcher, I'll say that. But like, he's not like the most fleet of foot player on the team. From second came around to score while the absurd round was not taking place. Adding insult to injury, Baez ran from home to first, missed throw from the catcher to first base, and Baez made it to second on the bot throw. And he later scored in that inning. Cubs won 5-3. I'm not a great, I have a, I have a master's degree and I'm going to use it to sound weak egotistical for 30 seconds. If you subtract two from five, you get three. And those two runs shouldn't have occurred. So it could have been a, a closer, it could, it could have been a great game. I mean, what's so funny about that play is uh, while like Weston Contreras, like, you know, touch tone play, Baez himself motioned himself safe. Which, and he, which is actually just, not correct from what I understand. Like, a player is not safe until the play is over. Right, because it was a force out. So so then Bias, after he motioned that Contreras was safe, he realized that he had to run to first base, and he started running to first base. But what's so unsalted about that was no one was paying attention and no one's at first base whatsoever. Right, the second baseman didn't move over close on the first base. So four, three, two infielders, the catch, it was all a mess. The Best reek. I'd read that from a Pittsburgh Post-Gazette editorial board opinion piece, but I just read to you. I'm going to read more from that opinion piece because they call out Bob Nutting, the owner, real hard. <laughs> Mr. Nutting talks a big game about his commitment to smaller market teams and his enthusiasm for the Pirates, but talk is cheap. He should sell the team to an owner more capable of building real momentum, someone more willing to pump dollars into the payroll the Pirates still stand at second to last in terms of payroll to attract and retain talent. So it wants to be a part of Pittsburgh's momentum. I lived in Pittsburgh when they made the playoffs with the wild card game, that the play and wild card game a few times around. And that was massive. 
That was Andrew McCutcheon years. That was fantastic. I mean, Starling Marte was there. Gregory Polanco was still there, but it was, it was a big deal. That just was bad. I mean, that, that whole sequence just was in a, like a, I mean, we talked about Cabrian Hayes being in the year, like hope. And then you just see that. And it's just like, how much deeper can you dig yourself a hole for a team? Because I think they're decent. They may not win. They may not win a whole lot of games, but I don't see this as an accurate representation of the team. But if this is going to be a continued experience, and it sounds like the editorial board, they got a continued experience going on here. I don't think Bob Nutting will sell the team, but man, they got to spit. They got to put some players on the team because right now, I think you brought up a while ago when you talked about one of your tip of the cap. Their bullpen is, has had some great moments, but on the field, not so much. And I this mean, definitely shows it. What's so insulting about everything is um, this happened live uh, when the uh, broadcaster for uh, AT&T's uh, Pittsburgh uh, station um, was interviewing one of the, co- I think the bench coach, about how, you know, the player development's been working and how players have been making great plays and they've been mentally prepared and then this happens. And then after that whole play happened, the coach literally took off the microphone and left on live broadcast. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, it's not a good look. I don't think it's a particularly good look for them. So I don't know what's going to happen with the Pirates. I, they're at the basement of this NL Central uh, right now, as we sort of expect at the beginning of the year. Uh, but I don't think Bob Nutting's going to sell the team, but they definitely need to do some better jobs. I just saw like people really happy about the upgrades to the Mother Meyer League Stadium, so yay for the Altoona Curve. But that's not – you got to get more better pieces up, up in the big leagues then or get – acquire them at this point. Pittsburgh, it was a great city for a while. I mean, they were brought in some pretty interesting talent um, in terms of acquisitions. I remember the old A.J. Burnett thing. They lost Neil Walker, which was a big deal at the time many years ago. I'm dating myself 2015 when I left Pittsburgh, but it was a great team back then, and they have definitely fallen off a sharp, sharp manner since then. From selling a team to potentially moving a team, We are back on the Oakland Athletics and more details have come out from them. We have some information from Bloomberg's City Lab outlet uh, from a writer named Danielle Moran. Danielle Moran has brought up several new things, first of which that she mentioned in the Las Vegas Review Journal that Dave Cable and other Oakland A's officials had visited Las Vegas at the around May 24th. They were cited at the Vegas Golden Knights NHL playoff game, which is just great. It's just, it's like, it's very victim-y. It's like, I'm going to bait you into thinking I'm going to do this. I'm like, ooh, I'm going to show you. So Vegas Golden Knights hockey is a phenomenal site. I encourage everyone to watch the NHL playoffs as I brought up last time. But Dave Cable, not the greatest moment there, but he showed up. It's his choice. But beyond that, we learn more about the proposal in Oakland. Now, share some quotes from Danielle Moran's article. The A's want the rights to develop the Howard Terminal, a 55-acre stretch of land near Jack London Square, which is a very prominent area in Oakland, a popular waterfront district of bars and restaurants. They have hired a Copenhagen-based architectural design firm to plan a 35-seat open-air ballpark that features a rooftop park. 
We'll put a link to the description. The rendering of this rooftop park is pretty remarkable with tree-lined spaces, walkable areas, and seating. I want to pause for a second on 35,000 and ask Kazuki a question. Do you think that is one of the bigger, smaller, or middle-sized stadiums for MLB at this time comparably? It's probably leaning towards middle or more towards a smaller side because if you look at the bigger stadiums, they're at least 40,000, 50,000 like seating. So it's not as big as you know you would imagine for other stadiums. We're talking about maybe a Fenway Park type of sizes where Fenway is around 35,000 to 40,000 seats. So it shouldn't be that huge. It's exactly correct. Fenway Park is about 37, according to numbers that I found online. It's about the size of Progressive Field, which is about the size of Fenway Park. Same kind of design, high wall, that shallow, a smaller left field, larger right field, big area from around the base pass. And that's kind of how I imagine what this stadium could possibly look like. So we'll see. Around the stadium, new Borough Park District will emerge, continuing with the quotes from the article, boasting 270,000 square feet of retail space, 400 hotel rooms, a 3,400 seat performance center, plus 300. 3,000 apartment units, a gondola to ferry fans to the nearest BART station. The nearest BART station is like a, like a half a mile away. It's If you look at Google Maps, it's further inland. That's basically I know. The stadium itself and its running development will be privately financed if fully built out. The team estimates the cost at about $12 billion, B billion. The ace of the proposal will create 35,000 new jobs and bring $7 billion, with a B, dollars of new revenue into the city of over the life of the ballpark. Here's the part that we talked about last time that you always have to remember. In exchange, the team's asking for about $855 million in future tax dollars to finance infrastructure like road, sidewalk, and transportation improvements. Now, we sit at this crossroads of like, hey, you're not asking us to find something, but you're asking to take parts of other things you're doing and just allocate it differently. Part of the agreement is also a community benefits agreement to address affordable housing and displacement of current residents in the area. I couldn't really figure this out. It wasn't really specified in the article as detailed as I don't think it's quite well known right now. And that's like I, I'll mention our, our source Murph sent me this and he doesn't really even know how to orient like the displacement of, of people. But people are going to lose their housing or business or something's going to move. And it, it's hard to figure out what's exactly going to move because I'm sure the dimes will change over time. As also part of this, Teams also plans to redevelop parts of the former Coliseum site into office retail entertainment space, et cetera. With regards to why not build on the current site, here is the quote of quotes. The A's plan is very much in keeping with the contemporary stadium building trends since the opening of Baltimore's Canyon in 1992. This is, this is uh, Danielle Moran's um, uh, phrasing in the article, which she makes a killer point here. Baltimore's Camden Yards set a trend about how you build an interior ballpark in a city and just build up around it. For those who don't know Camden Yards, have you been to Camden Yards, Kazuki? No, I hear it's so gorgeous. It's my second favorite ballpark behind Pittsburgh. The, so Pittsburgh, I'll give it, Pittsburgh was built off the city center in like a little bit of a district with, they built up a couple of hotels and it's next to Heinz Field and on the other side of it with the Steelers play. With Baltimore, it's Camden Yards. There's a light rail station. There's, I even think, like a true train station, not like an Amtrak, but like the commuter rail station nearby. 
There's the warehouse and right field. And then behind it, they built these gorgeous hotels. Either app that you can look into the ballpark. There's a ballpark view room. I think it's a Hilton hotel. You can look into it. And then you think of like other things that do these creative ideas, like Rogers Center, which is the sky. There's a hotel built into that. And if you think about how they could manip- manage this, there's a book that um, Dana Moran cites, by the way, Paul Goldenberger, author of Baseball Park, Baseball American City. Um, if you can find it, I'd read it. Sections from it. But like the concept is you use entertainment just to revitalize your area. Now, outside of baseball, today, today is June 3rd, there is news that Jacksonville, Florida's owner of the Jaguars is trying to do the same thing. Redevelop their practice facilities, enhance their stadium to revitalize downtown. I don't know how that's going to work, but it's it's the same concept. If we think about how different ballparks are going to be part of like the inner city itself, we'll start looking more into this. But again, Camden Yards is the is the preeminent one. Like it was the first one. It definitely has it. Cleveland's actually a nice example too. It's right in the middle of Cleveland. Like you, you drive right by on the road. Like there's no, it's not separated off or anything. Pittsburgh is a little separated off. Fenway Park is much older, but it's smack in the middle of the city. Yankee Stadium really isn't like that because Yankee Stadium is just itself. There's the subway trains and then there's a giant park next to it. There's not like a whole lot of commercial. There's not a whole lot of entertainment, tourism activity right around. Right. Same was uh, City Field. Correct. City Field's off by itself. In Flushing, there's a lot of hotels and everything because of LaGuardia Airport, but not directly attached to it. Safeco is an interesting, Safeco now T-Mobile Park, there's hotels around it and like there's entertainment venues around it. But I think those developed as a precursor when the, because the Kingdom is not, was around there too. But also there's Quest, well, CenturyLink, then or Quest, CenturyLink, and now Lumen Field, which is next door. Like you can look into one from the other. There's like a, that whole, there's an arena district. There's a couple of cities that have arena districts. Like, I'm not an urban planner. Uh, we're trying to find one to explain all this to us. But I big shout out to our friend Murph in the Bay Area who sent this to us because Dave Cavill is really advocating for people to vote yes on a ballot measure. We are 45 days away from a ballot. July 20th, Oakland has a ballot measure to get this stadium running. I suspect if that does not approve, it's San Diego Part two, San Diego, if everyone knows, is San Diego had a similar, I believe, had a similar idea of like a vote a ballot measure to get a new Qualcomm, which was for the Chargers. It failed miserably. And Dean Spano said, thanks, bye-bye. And they walked up the street to Los Angeles because prior to that, San Diego built Petco. Petco is actually a much better example like Oakland. Petco has the apartments, the condos, the warehouse very similar to Baltimore. So I'll end my speech there, but it's very interesting to watch this unfold. We'll continue providing updates about this, but I think Kazuki and I have a more vetted interest than we thought when it comes to how this all plays out, considering one of our previous guests, Dr. Meredith Wills, really likes Oakland as a baseball area to watch games. Uh, And with that, we'll move on to our final article in final part of the cycle, and that is looking back at May. What's happened in May, or as of May, as we've gone into the second month of the season. I like this stat brought to you by great MLB writer, Peter Gammons. Rich Hill is having a very good month. Had a great month. 
34 and two thirds innings pitch, three earned runs, a 0.78 ERA, and a 27% strikeout rate. Rich Hill came from the Dodgers. No one really cared about him. Ends up in Tampa Bay, and he's like Charlie Morton 2.0. Like they needed another Charlie Morton, and, and they got him. So that's good. Uh, at the end of the month, Tampa Bay and San Francisco were the were the respectively the top teams in their division so far. The Rays ended the month going nine and one, last ten games. In contrast, their division opponent, the Orioles, who we had praised so early on in May after the John, um, he, uh, the um, John Means, no John hammer. Means, perfect game. I, I, I want to say I, I get the, it should have been a perfect game, right? The, the non the non perfect game, but the no hitter. Uh, Finish the seat, finish the month going 0-10. In the NL, we'll come to you about the Dimebacks in a second here. Well, in the NL East, I found this quite a quite just shocking. There's only one team so far throughout the season at the end of May with a 500 or better record in the NL East. That's the New York Mets. Phillies, Nationals, Marlins. No, no, no. They're, the Braves are close, but I just want, like, I live in New York. Like, I need the Mets to do, like, good, but not good because everyone else is not great. Like, do good because for good's sake. Uh, I'll end there. And then you have a quick note about the Diamondbacks that really struck out, stuck out, struck, um, meant a lot to me because I was like, I think they're good. They're not good. Yeah, the interesting part about the D-backs, uh, they got zoned very hard where uh, they lost 13 straight games. They just dropped it. And that's the longest skid since the Twins dropped 13 in a row in August 18th through 31st of 2016. So it's been nearly like five years since this happened, but Arizona dropped so hard that the Rockies are above them. Rockies who we expected them to tank and not perform at all is a couple games above the Arizona Diamondbacks. So luckily they did break that skid uh, this past Monday, uh, but they're, they've been losing sense again because they had, you know, a couple of tough opponents uh, here and there. Yeah. As we brought up earlier, they just finished a series with the Mets. So that's going to be, we'll see what happens from here. Obviously, unless something incredibly miraculous happens, we do not imagine them placing in the playoffs because they have to fight through in that division the Padres, the Giants, and the Dodgers. The Rockies, the Rockies is like, are they tanking? Are they just setting themselves up to trade Trevor Story? That's, There's a lot of rumors there right. about where he And they might just be lost a front office official too. The front Jeff office. Rittich, yes, right. GM. Where the GM left. I presume that was a, also a quasi-fallout from the whole Nolan Arenado thing. So we're just having all sorts of fun in Colorado. And then Arizona, as you mentioned, are just bad um the orioles have not been great um there is an article online i will encourage everyone to go and read it there's uh will light uh to the mlb's may 21 may 2021 all-star team it's interesting names up there so i encourage you all to kind of take a piece through it um the other thing that i heard about for the end of may was the home run leaders uh it was they're all on very young it was acuna jr flatty Vladdy, they're all very young, which is a very new thing. I, I give credit to Sarah Langs from MLB for that one. And then the other words is Adelise Garcia, who just hitting home runs like crazy in Texas. So that's that's the end of the cycle. 
And as you notice, we kind of changed up a little bit. We didn't go too heavy on the stats this time, but it was interesting to kind of walk through all the other things. And like I said, we'll keep track of this whole evolving thing in both, in mostly Oakland, but Pittsburgh, I don't think they're going to sell the team, but I'm curious to see what happens after that. Coming up after the break, we'll tip our caps, give them the hook, and talk about two walk-up songs that are absolute bangers. But first, best record in the American League right now, the Tampa Bay Rays. And it brings us to the essential baseball question. How do you win? We've gotten used to the Rays, but it's a baseball miracle happening right in front of us. Let's start with a little digging in. Welcome back. And we're back now with our tip of the caps, our given the hooks and walk up song of the show. And we'll start with our tip of the cap and Kazuki, you're going first this week. All right, cool. So my pick might be kind of interesting because uh, we don't expect someone really good outside of Trevor Story from this team. But Josh Fuentes, or officially he changed his name to Joshua Fuentes, uh, is my player of the week. Uh, he has been heating up to a point that he's been helping these Rockies win games. Uh, he batted. He was uh, named Austin NL Player of the Week, actually, this past week. Um, he batted 500, was a 909 slugging percentage, and a 1431 OPS that was ranked second best in the NL this past week. And he racked up two home runs, eight doubles, and 13 RBIs during that player of the week. And multiple RBIs in all five games. And the, and the Rockies were on a four-game winning streak during this time. So he tip of a cap there. Uh, he replaced uh, Nolan Arenado. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about this, Brandon, uh, if you could confirm I think he's a cousin of Nolan Arenado, right? I believe so. I believe that that fact came out in one of the broadcasts. And so, yeah, leading up to the week of Memorial Day, he got an L Player of the Week. And that's great. Like, that team needs, like, some highlight. I mean, the only player, you know, player one of the players I follow from them continuously is Jolice Trustee still on that team. Yeah, still. Yeah, yeah, still. It's, I, I love that because I remember his, who was his brother or his cousin Gustavo was a fantastic pitcher a while ago for the Blue Jays. It fell off an absolute cliff. But Jolice is still here. And Jolice has been a steady member of that team for a very, very long time. So it's interesting, like I said, Rob, I, I love a good Rockies thing. Um, our, I have a couple of friends in Denver, and they're like, we can't expect much. And they got some bright spots. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, with that, I'll go to mine. Uh, mine is a little bit of a, a collection of individuals. Donovan Walton of the Seattle Mariners, Ben Rovert, Rortvit of the Minnesota Twins and Webster Rivas, the San Diego Padres, all three hit their first career home runs in the last week or so uh, at the end of May, which is obviously a great moment. And I thought it was really cool. They all hit him in like very consecutive days, especially Webster Rivas, who was a career minor leaguer uh, and just really just set up like when he did it in, and he did it in Houston, which was an interesting moment, which is great. And I'm going to give a bonus one. We're going to go outside of MLB for this one. As because you, as if you have listened to our podcast for a while now, you know that Seattle is like it's my original. I'm from Seattle. It's a it's become the adopted city of of Kazuki. Uh, I've like I mentioned in our last podcast, you should watch a lot of sports going on right now. And University of Washington women, the University of Washington softball game, softball team ended their season after a performance in the Super Regionals to Oklahoma, the number one overall seed. However, in that series. I believe, I believe she plays shortstop. Her name is Sis Bates. Sis Bates became the all-time leader in University of Washington program history. And I had to laugh at first the coincidence of her name being Sis 
and remembering George Sisler was the all-time hits leader before Ichiro broke it. So I love that. Like, like it's a very nuanced coincidence. But congratulations to her because that's a pretty cool accomplishment. And to get it coming after coming back for a year, she was a graduate student because she they didn't play a season in 2019 in 2020. She came back, played. They made it all the way to the Super Regional round and did on May 28th, which is congratulations to her, congratulations to the team. And now we're into the World Series for softball now. So if you're remember, tuning to ESPN, it's going on right now as we as we uh, as we record this episode. And now we'll go to give them the hooks and I'll spoil mine. You've heard my name already. And I believe you're going to you have already heard Kazuki mention this person at least once in the in the season so far for his given the hook this week. Uh God, um, this is me watching a live Yankees game. Uh, man, I don't know. I mean, Yankees collectively, um, yeah, as a whole, they've been bad outside of Garrett Cole uh, and Aaron Judge. They've been very, very bad. It's not just because they've been playing poorly. It's just their mental game's been very, very awful. Like you kind of start questioning their intelligence um, once you see them because they're professional athletes and they just make these boneheaded plates. But mine, give me the hook for this week, is Gary Sanchez of the New York Yankees. Um, He has been, what can I say, an embarrassment to this organization and probably to a lot of fans out there for the Yankees. he made um, so some to notice. He made a couple of base running blunders against the Tigers and the Rays, which in my mind, what the hell are you doing right here? Like, what is going on? So in the Rays game recently, he was caught down in a rundown, uh, and you know, lost a potential base runner for the Yankees score when the Yankees are struggling to get, you know, runners in and have these runs in. You just get thrown out. Uh, the other one that I thought was even more embarrassing to look at is the overrunning that turned in, uh, that was a throwing error by one of the shortstops of the Tigers, uh, and the ball barely like left first the first baseman and he started to he start he hesitated and then he started turning to running to second base and he got caught in a rundown and it was in um, I believe the extra innings where you know games are tight and you just get thrown out. Like, why? Why? Like, why would you do this? Uh, Quick interjection so, on that one. Tigers swept them in that series too, right? Yeah, they did. They did. Okay. They just, did. Thinking, just, just, just checking. They did. And he just overran and, you know, kill, he killed the rally right there. Uh, so base, a lot of boneheaded base running move, but I'm not saying not just that. He's been bad overall. So while he is heating up on the offensive side. He's still hitting a putrid 202 average with six home runs, 13 RBIs, with 40 strikeouts and 124 at-bats. So we're looking at a 32% K rate uh, and a 379 slugging percentage. Uh, first, uh, quote-unquote power hitter, if you can't really hit anything, like you're not really a power hitter. You're like probably a you know, minor leaguer at this point. Like, this is very, very bad. And Yankees are paying him six $6 million this year for him to be a catcher. And he's not even a starting catcher anymore. He's a part-time with Kyle Hiyashioka. So, uh, like, what is he doing? And and on top of his putrid offense, his bad, bad offense, we all know he's a horrible defensive catcher. And still is today. His fielding percentage is at 987 with four errors 
and he's uh, let 11 base stolen, and he only caught one runner. So that's a one out of 12 chances. So he only caught 8% of the runner this year in 282 innings. Uh, that's pretty bad. Um, what can I say about Gary Sanchez? Like, I think the Yankees really blew the chance to, you know, trade him sometimes last year or year before, or maybe in 2017. Um, I don't think that trend's going to change anytime soon. Uh, I'm not sure like what to say. Like Gary Sanchez is just a horrible player and he's not going to improve. Like he has great, he had great promise and talent, but he has a very low baseball IQ. Like um, I got to, you know, mention that he's, uh, I don't know if I should say this on my podcast, but we'll, he, we'll hold you back from there. Cause I, I have a question. We'll hold, hold back your opinion. Right, right. So, uh, so, so we'll think about this. The Yankees have been obviously in play for a player like Trevor story. I'm not sure how they would work in a package for that. But how I wonder how likely we obviously don't know now. We're very, we're eight weeks of the trade deadline. I wonder how likely it is they could throw in Gary Sanchez's salary into that setting. The only problem is there's no DH in Colorado, and I believe they probably have, they I think they have a, a pretty full time catcher right now in Colorado. Dom Nunez, right? Yeah. Right. So unless he picks up another position or willing to play first, which I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen either. It, they might just move him or cut him at this point, it seems like, because he said Higashioka is, is there and they may work their way from bringing up a catcher or finding a catcher to back him up. Because otherwise, you're right. It seems like he has really fallen out of favor with the team. I'll leave it at that. I think that that's where we can end it there. He's definitely fallen out of favor with the Yankees overall until he yeah. really picks it up. I think the issue with the Trevor Soros trade uh, is the fact that the Yankees have this luxury cap, so they don't want to spend too much. But you kind of have to if you don't have a center fielder and a catcher. Uh, and you have a prime Garrett Cole and you're in the first year DJ LeMahieu's contract. Uh, like, you got to spend. Like, you know, there's no question about that. Like, unless you're going to tank, which I doubt you will, was prime Cole uh, coming in. So I don't think that's going to happen, but... I think it's going to be really, really tough. Um, and that's the problem with uh, prospect hoarding is not every prospect is going to turn out to be a star. Like you're not going to expect everyone we're learning to. That. We're, learning that, we're learning that very clear with the Mariners. Yep. Because the Mariners are considering what doing that. And I'm watching that and I'm a fan of an NHL team that has prospect hoarded for years. And now they're like, we have to make a move. And the, to watch an analyst go through like, you can't trade this guy, you can't trade this guy, you can't trade this guy. Trade this guy, and it's like you're down to like your fourth best prospect to trade, and he's like a top hundred prospect overall anyway. So it's just like, how can you move the part? So I think you're right. I think there's a lot to uncover with the Yankees and how they're going to move him. Uh, I'll give my pick because it's a quite easy scenario for my uh, give him the hook this week. It's Will Craig, uh, the first baseman on the Pittsburgh Pirates, in said play with Javi Baez. Um, it reminded me of, for all of our listeners and for Kazuki, do you remember the J.R. Smith moment in the NBA Finals several years ago where he forgot how much time is left and the score? I mean, it's, it's like, how could you just, like LeBron James is dead in the eye. He's like, do something. And <laughs> yeah, uh, I remember that. It was the same thing. So I'll quote here from Chris Quick of Yahoo Sports. Okay, Pirates fans, you know that was painful enough to watch. Unfortunately, we know, we know how to... We now have to reveal the absolute worst part of the play. There were two outs. Craig could have stepped on first base and easily retired Bias in the inning. Instead, 
the forgotten number of outs or was so enticed by Baez playing a dance with him, or by chasing Baez, it says in the article, down the ba- down that baseball logic deserted Craig in that moment. The rest of the Pirates bear some responsibility here too, but any of Craig's teammates yell at him to tag the base? They all seem to go along with it. So I just, I just, I've, I had to learn to play first base on our softball team one time. And it's a very unique position. I'm me. But I know there are two outs. Get to a base. Find the closest base and tag it. And Will Craig just, or just like bias. A, a tag bias. He wasn't that far. You could have like leaned and like right. he, it's like Instead he forgot. Instead of off to home plate. <laughs> and he said he like uh, loft the ball home plate. And then I think it's Jacob Stallings the co- is the catcher. Yeah. And it was like, what are we with the ball? And like Jacob Stallings tried to, tried to tag Contreras, obviously. And then Baez with the safe motion. I think Will Craig was just so out of sorts there. So he got got that. He got me a fool. He got. I, I want to interject. He wasn't he a first round pick for the Pirates in like 2018 or 19? I think I don't he is. know. I don't know. So that's a good question. But for if he's a up around talent too, and he, I, it's not <laughs> not pretty. But Will Craig, Gary Sanchez, you have been given the hook this week. And with that, we'll end the uh, the baseball specific portions for a while of our podcast, and we'll we'll go with our walk up songs of the show for the week. And uh, this week, uh, I decided to bring two. Uh, the first being uh, one that is just so special to me. And for our younger listeners, as Kazuki has pointed out to me, we have listeners who are between the ages of 13 and 18. I'm going to politely remind you that the record that this came out on today will be given an explicit, war- explicit language warning. So politely, I will mention that to you. Our first walk-up song of the show is a walk-up song for none other than Big Poppy, who is beautifully, beautifully done by Keenan Thompson on Saturday Night Live with the big lunch. David Ortiz, early in his Boston career, came out to the song Big Papa by the Notorious B.I.G., which is just, and I, I will say this as someone who appreciates that song so much, one of the most iconic hip-hop songs of all time, one of the most best songs probably of the 90s of all genres, just an iconic song. So I'll give you a little bit of history of the song and then how you may have heard it before. The song was released in 1994. It was a second single off uh, Biggie's f- first studio album, Ready to Die. It samples a song by the Isley Brothers from 1983 called Between the Sheets. So if you listen to both songs, you'll notice that the beat from Between the Sheets is what Biggie uses on Big Papa. So it's great to know that. It was nominated for Best Solo Rap Performance and it lost out to another iconic song of the 90s in 1996, Coolio's Gangsta Paradise, the song Biggie's, uh, Notorious B.I.G.'s Big Papa, so was given certified, was certified platinum. I just messed up all his names there, but he has, one, he has great nicknames, and I, I, was, I always use them interchangeably in my script there, so I apologize for that. However, to a class of baseball fans, other than the Big Papi and coming out to the song, this song came to light in a baseball film that is not a particularly well, critically acclaimed film, but it's a great baseball film, Hardball, starring Keanu Reeves, 2001. In the movie, there is a character. I will not spoil the film. I'm the conscious of the film. There's a character, a young man named Miles, who has trouble getting into the rhythm to pitch quite well in his Little League games. So he has a tape player, and all it is is Big Papa on repeat over and over and over. And one team tell, takes away 
the tape player. They tell him you can't wear headphones while you pitch. So in a crucial moment in one of the games, the entire team and then the entire supporting crowd for their team starts singing big the chorus to Big Papa. And it's just, you throw your hands in the air and, 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 and you're a true player. And it's just like the, it's just a line that will you I can embrace for so long. And again, Inside Hook brought me to this originally, but just Big Papa, obviously used Big Papa. So David Ortiz, great walk-up song. And I'll leave it with that one. Our second song is not a walk-up song yet, though I have hope. I have my hope. Like I said, I have to give thanks to the social media app known as TikTok. And I don't have a TikTok account. Do you have a TikTok account? No, I don't. (laughs) You do not. Um, I know a lot of people reference TikTok. And because of this song, because of TikTok, the song became popular. In November 2020, there was a dance track by the group The Basement Gang. And they started doing a sort of dances. It looked like some looked like something out of like traditional Russian dance or an adopted form of Russian dance. And I was wondering, what is this? Because I heard about like these people getting becoming popular by doing Russian dances. And to a song called Rasputin, which is a true character in modern Russian history. Rasputin is a song by Bonian, which is a German Caribbean elect dance group. It's a collection of Caribbean of individuals from the Caribbean. So I think there I read from Several, uh, several women and then a, a, a man from the Caribbean were put together by a German producer in the late 70s. And what happened was, is they released several very prominent songs, but one of them was Rasputin. Like I said, the Basement Gang recorded this video. They're a, a collection of individual African-American, African-American individuals, and they just do these great dances on TikTok. Like I started watching all their videos and I started researching the song. And it started this massive series of videos, like looking into the song. And what happened was, is people discovered, and I source a uh, an article from the from Insider, the dance that got popularized was from the video game Just Dance in the early 2010s. I don't have video game. Did you play Just Dance? You played Dance Revolution back in the yep. day. Yeah, okay. back in the day. So this song is an absolute banger. It is catchier than I can ever believe. It's also rather historically accurate, the original version, which reminded me of like another popular song that actually played a lot of games, which is Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. So the song presents like this story of Grigory Rasputin, who is this mystic figure from the 19 teens. And the song basically details the story of what happened when Rasputin became part of Sarah Nicholas II's inner circle and got to befriend Alexandra, the wife of Sir Nicholas II. I encourage you all to listen to this song because I am firmly of the belief that if someone picks up this song of the younger generation in baseball or some crowd picks up on it, this is the next Baby Shark from Gerardo Parra because Gerardo Parra playing Baby Shark was a cultural sensation when he was a great player, but it ignited National Spark. That was the World Series year, wasn't it? Yep, and they won it. And they won it. So all you need is one, I think. Uh, Originally, this song was released when it was released in 1978 was the number two song in the UK singles chart peaked at number one in Austria, Belgium, Australia, and Germany. It is currently been remixed by a North London DJ named Majestic. It is now number as of last week. So the May 28th chart, new release chart being tomorrow, June 4th, 16th in the 16th um, uh, ranking in the singles chart. 
I encourage you all to listen to the song. We'll add it to our pod, we'll add it to our playlist in the coming weeks. But if you can just Google it, Google the original. Don't Google the remix. This is, I swear, the next Baby Shark in baseball. And I will stand by that. Uh, so it's it's that. And with that, we'll conclude with extra innings. And it's a more it's a very honorary in- extra innings this week. June 2nd, yesterday, marked the first ever Lou Gehrig Day in baseball. Lou Gehrig, who has the namesake of ALS, is now is popularly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And every team wore a four ALS patch yesterday. I'm reminded of several things. First, ALS is a disease which has no cure. And when something has no cure, when a disease has no cure, you see people try to raise money in the most creative ways possible. And several years ago, there's a young man named Pete Frades, Boston College baseball uh, alum. He and his friend and teammate, Pat Quinn, created the Ice Bucket Challenge to raise money for ALS. And they raised millions of dollars for Ice Bucket Challenge. Pete Frades is synonymous with this too. I mean, Lou Gehrig's memory in baseball is that speech when he was going to leave baseball. Obviously, his numbers retired in baseball. He's in the Hall of Fame. I think he's in the Hall of Fame. It's amazing to watch how much impact that speech, his performance, and that speech meant to the uncovering of this disease. And June 2nd obviously means a lot. And I learned today uh, from an article on ESPN about Brian Wayne Galantine, who was a Nashville songwriter who was diagnosed with ALS uh, in the mid-2010s, sent a text message that started off the conversation that got all the teams to agree to this day yesterday. And his family, uh, was throughout the first pitch, unfortunately, Brian... Wayne Galantine passed away in 2019. Uh, his family, his wife and his two sons were the, throughout the first pitch yesterday, they were at, at Camden Yards and Mr. Galantine, Brian Wayne, was a lifelong Orioles fan. So I can't imagine that moment. Um, there are several other prominent athletes who have suffered from ALS and I want Kazuki to offer his thing. The NHL has assistant general manager of the Calgary Flames, Chris Snow. Uh, he was a former beat writer for the Boston Red Sox. And to me, I obviously was alive when Lou Gehrig played baseball. Uh, ALS came to the forefront from the athlete that I have. My, I have one NFL shirt with a name and name on the back. And it is for number 37, Steve Gleason of the New Orleans Saints. And in 2006, I encourage everyone to just search Team Gleason and Steve Gleason punt block. In 2006, the first game back from Hurricane Katrina destroying the city of New Orleans. That city needed a moment of renaissance. And I will try to hold back my tears describing this moment because I remember watching it. Mike Tirico was on the call and the Atlanta Falcons lined up for a punt and a stream of white just comes across your screen and this, with the flow surfer hair, the surfer flow hair, Steve Gleason runs onto my screen and blocks the punt and the crowd of 70,000 at the Superdome, absolutely punishingly erupts. And it reminded me of how powerful this this one moment could be. And then he was diagnosed with ALS five years later. And he is still fighting. And the fact that Lou Gehrig Day took is on the 
2021 came to fruition, it just meant a lot for me just reminds that these. So what did it mean for you to see this all come to fruition and kind of like almost like a cold, like a crowdsourced trend? Like I said, Ryan Wayne Galantine just sent a text message and everyone's like, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then it just, it came to light for the first time on the day in which I found out that June 2nd was the day in both which Lou Gehrig passed away and the day that he started his streak, which was then broken by Cal Ripken. So I'll leave it to you to offer your thoughts. I mean, ALS is a serious disease, um, you know, that brought down a lot of great people, not just in baseball, but around the world, like Stephen Hawking suffered it for a very, very long time. And like, thankfully, he lived through the age of 87. So like, you know, it's still a very harmful disease. And the ice bucket challenge, you know, brought a lot of attention, you know, especially to me, the younger generation. But I don't think um, it felt like a blip during that time, right? Where it was like this one year of like creative challenges and everyone kind of didn't seem to care about it. So the MLB to actually start this holiday, I think is a good thing because we'll have a reminder every year about fighting for this cause. And, and hopefully, you know, in the next couple of years, we could find a cure. I mean, it takes a very long time. I mean, it's been going on for over 80 years uh, since Luke Gehrig announced in 32 about his retirement and he was diagnosed with it. So um, it's going to take a while, but I think it's going to be a fight and hopefully with more awareness and more coverage uh, and more funding, you know, I think we'll find something, you know, in the near future where this is going to be a, not a disease, kind of like how we discovered polio in the 30s and kind of got it cured. So that's just my thought. And as I said, it's a very, we're all very ambitious when it comes to healthcare science, as we've seen in the last year, how much the value of science when it comes to healthcare is just, you find something miraculous and you, and you don't know how to comprehend it. Like we hope that comes to worship for ALS. Like I said, it, and Kazuki brought a great point, it just struck down, um, just like other diseases, I've struck down the common people that you know, your neighbors, your family, your friends, but also those prominent figures. And that's why I think baseball, it's forever tied to baseball, this disease, it was its name, its popularized name is for one of the most prolific players in all of MLB history. Uh, and with that, like I said, we encourage you all to pay attention. We'll include some links to things. Uh, we're recording this the day after Lou Gehrig Day, but keep an eye out for what you see about things like this going forward. Like I said, we don't want to be something like this, that, like I said, Kazuki's the challenge in when for the SBA challenge, it happened and then it kind of fluttered away, but it did raise a lot of money. So we're wondering if that will come back again with things like that. Uh, and with that, we'll conclude our episode for today, June 3rd. Uh, thank you all for being here and we'll be back again in a couple weeks. See you soon. That's it for this episode of Sonar Baseball. This episode of Sonar Baseball is hosted and produced by me, Kazuki Akiba and Brandon Beiser. This episode was edited by Kazuki Akiba with additional research by Brandon Beiser. Our theme song is by Kay Margus. Sonar Baseball is a production of Daylight and Media 3 Limited. We'll be back with another episode. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast as more people will know about this show. Go to daylightinteractive.com to see some exclusive updates and more about our upcoming shows. I'm Kazuki Akiba. And I'm Brandon Beiser. And this has been Sound Our Baseball.